It is the most wonderful time of the year. With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. It's the hap happiest season of all. With those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings when friends come to call. It's the hap happiest season of all. There will be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. Come back at 6 p.m. tonight. There will be caroling minus the snow. There will be much mistletoeing, and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Do these lyrics capture the real meaning of Christmas? Or maybe instead of looking to a song, we could look to a, a great classic movie from 1998 starring Bill Murray, Scrooged. All right, best line of the whole thing. He's talking about Christmas Eve. He says, it's Christmas Eve. It's that one night of the year when we all act a little nicer, we all smile a little easier, we all cheer a little more for a couple of hours on one night out of the year, we are the people we always hoped we would be. Does that capture the real meaning of Christmas? It is a season of, of happiness and peace and love and good cheer. But there's more. There's more. Perhaps the real meaning is deeper. Perhaps, if you would allow, it's even darker. It's certainly more sobering than marshmallows and stuff. And so I want to ask you this morning, should the real meaning of Christmas offend us? Has Christmas offended you? Some of you are saying, uh, Christmas hasn't offended me, but your sermon titles sure do. Because last week it was the dreadful coming of Emmanuel. And this week it's being offended by Christmas. What's wrong with you? You're some kind of monster? But I, sh I assure you I'm not trying to rain on the Christmas parade. I'm not trying to be a party pooper. But what I do want to do is take some of these beloved Christmas verses and plug them back into the context from which they come. And I promise you that doing that will not take away from the joy of the season. It will only help show you the real depth of joy that is there. And so I want to read our passage and then dig into it and find out why we should be offended by Christmas. So if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? This is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. 
But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned. As fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May God add his blessing to the reading and to the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you help us this morning, this third Sunday of Advent, smack dab in the middle of Christmas season, Would you help us to understand your word rightly and even to understand the season that we find ourselves in? Would you speak to us from your word? Would you show us Christ? And as you show us Christ, would you change us and transform us by his beautiful and glorious gospel? For your glory and for his sake, O Lord, we pray and ask these things. Amen. Please be seated. So let me start by giving you sort of my thesis, if you will, or or my proposition as it relates to being offended by Christmas. I've got it up on the screen for you. You must first be offended by Christmas before you can truly know the joy of Christmas. You've got to first be offended before you can truly know joy. And, and don't miss me here. There is great joy to be had at Christmas. I just don't want us to settle for the cheap imitation that the world offers. And that is so often in the, the cheesy little greeting cards and certainly in the Christmas movies on the Hallmark Channel It's a cheap imitation of the real thing. So let me bring you up to speed on where we are in case you missed last week. Last week we looked at Isaiah 7 and we looked at the very famous verse 714 about the virgin will conceive and bear a son and she'll call his name Emmanuel. And we found out last week, perhaps surprisingly, that at the time... The coming of Emmanuel was a dreadful thing for the king of Judah, for King Ahaz. Because the coming of Emmanuel was actually the sign of judgment. 
because of Ahaz's stubborn refusal to believe the promises of God that he would protect, that he would provide. Instead, Ahaz turned elsewhere. He He tried to ally himself with Judah's greatest enemy, with Assyria. And so the fulfillment of this prophecy, the sign being fulfilled by Emmanuel's coming, would indicate to Ahaz that far from being a help, Assyria would become their worst nightmare and would in fact invade and nearly destroy Judah. And so if you kept reading last week the rest of chapter 7 and you read into chapter 8, you saw that this did come to pass, that the Assyrian invasion was swift and it was devastating. Darkness, distress, despair. And if we look closely at Isaiah, you see two groups emerge And the two groups are different in how they respond to this despair, how they respond to this darkness. One group will be lifted up out of the darkness. One group will be plunged further in. And it's this second group that we read about at the end of Isaiah 8 in verses 21 and 22. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And so here's the one group, and here's the two things that they did. First thing they did was they blamed God for their distress. They spoke contemptuously. They they turned their faces upward as if to wag the finger and say, you did this. No relief came from that, so then they turned and they looked to the earth. And they blamed the invading nations. You did this to us. But there's another group There's the group that today's verses in the beginning of 9 are addressed to. A group who I think because they were willing to suffer the offense of Christmas were made ready for the joy of Christmas. And the key is this. The key is found in the most famous verse of our passage today. Verse 6, For to us a child is born To us a son is given. Imagine, if you will, that it's payday. And your boss comes in. And he hands you your paycheck. And he says, this is my gift to you. Now, unless you're just a total slacker and spend all day on Facebook and Candy Crush, that should not sit well with you. And you respond and you reply, this isn't a gift. I earned it. I worked hard these last two weeks for this. I deserve this. It's not a gift. 
Not so with the son who was born. This son had to be given. Because the only thing that the folks in this passage had earned and deserved was the darkness that they found themselves in, earned by their own sin and by their own unbelief. And so rather than wagging the finger at God or seeking to blame those around them, they had to turn the finger back on self. It's my sin. It's my unbelief that's the cause of this problem. And if there's going to be any solution, if there's going to be any way out, it's going to have to come as a gift. And so those who are willing to suffer the offense of saying, it's me, to those comes the joy the real meaning of Christmas. So let's start back at the beginning of this passage and let's work our way through it. It is bursting with joy. Folks, there's real joy to be had here after all the doom and gloom and darkness and destruction of chapter 7 and 8. Chapter 9 begins, but there will be no gloom. It's a sharp contrast that's drawn between the way things were and the way things will be mentioned Zebulun and Naphtali. These are among the first two lands in the north that are destroyed in the Assyrian invasion. Light has come in verse 2 to dispel the darkness. And then in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You've multiplied the nation. This is a staggering promise, especially if you think about last week. So last week... Isaiah is told to go to the people and take your son with you. And if you'll remember, his name had a particular meaning. The son's name meant a remnant will return. And so for this nation who's been divided in a kingdom north and a south, for this nation who's going to suffer great defeat and only a small handful is going to remain, this promise comes... The nation's going to be multiplied. No longer a remnant, but multiplied. And this is an important promise when you plug it back into the big story of Scripture, when you plug this back into the covenant promise that God initially made to Abraham. Think back to Genesis 12, this initial promise of, I'm going to make you a great nation. And then everything after that shows the nation in great peril and its very existence in great jeopardy, especially now when only a remnant will remain. But the promise comes, you're going to be multiplied. And so think too, this is a little rabbit trail, but it's worth it. The end of verse 1 mentions Galilee of the nations. Why were God's people going to be made into a great nation? For their own benefit? Think back to that covenant promise in Genesis 12. Not for their own benefit. They were going to be made a great nation. They were going to be blessed beyond measure so that in them all the nations could be blessed. It's part of their purpose. And so the the great promise that this nation is going to be multiplied is not just for their own existence, but it's for the blessing of all 
the nations. The Lord has increased joy for this multiplied nation. You've got two great pictures of this in verse 3. Two pictures of how great the joy is going to be. In an agrarian society and culture, there's no greater joy to be had than the joy of harvest time, especially a bountiful harvest when the barns can't even hold it all. Great, great joy. And the second picture seems a little ironic to me. This picture of dividing spoil after some conquest and you divvy up all the loot, right? When they themselves right now are the loot that's being divvied up. But there's a day coming. There's a day coming. And it's probably a good point here to sort of address Isaiah's language. Because you see, Isaiah's speaking as if these things have already happened. Did you pick up on that? He's saying the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Light has shined. They rejoice present tense. Isaiah speaking as if these things are already reality, but the fact of the matter is, it's going to be another 200 years before the darkness begins to lift from Jerusalem, and another 500 years after that before this child will be born. So how can Isaiah speak in terms as if it's already happened? Well, I assure you, it's not just the power of positive thinking. It's not some name it, claim it, try to speak it into existence kind of thing. It's based on the promise of God. Isaiah is the Lord's prophet. He is the Lord's mouthpiece. And the Lord has said, say this to my people. This is my word. This is my promise. And so because it is the promise of God, the future is so certain that the present is already affected. Do you hear that this morning? When it comes to the promise of God, the future is so certain that the present is already effective. You can begin to walk now in the light of what is to come. That's the life of faith. That's the life that this remnant was called to believe and to walk in. And that, my friends, is what we are called to believe and walk in. Not to live in the light of present circumstances, but in light of the promised hope that is to come. To endure whatever light and momentary afflictions we may be experiencing now, because there's a future glory coming that far outweighs them all, Paul says. There is a reality now, but it's not the ultimate reality. And what we've got going on now doesn't hold a candle to what's coming. And it's in light of the fact that this son would be born. And what he would come to do, back to verse 4, the promise comes that even in the midst of a great burden and oppression, 
The people are called to live in light of the fact that one day it would be broken. In light of the fact that this son who would be born and who would come would one day say, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. And I love at the end of verse 4 how Isaiah says this is going to happen. How is the oppression going to be broken? How is the burden going to be lifted? As on the day of Midian. All right, well, what was the day of Midian? All right, think back to me to Judges, right? And to a fellow, his name actually rhymes with Midian. It's Gideon. You remember Gideon? And he said, you're going to go and you're going to fight Midian and you're going to be successful. You're going to be victorious. But you got way too many men to do it. And so the Lord goes through this process of whittling down Gideon's army to a very unreasonably small number to which Gideon has to say, are you sure, Lord? <laughs> are you really sure, Lord? And why is the Lord doing this? Why does Isaiah compare the, the breaking of this oppression and the lifting of this burden to the day of Midian? Because God wants us to know that He did it. It was His doing. It was His glory, His victory, and not our own. And so here's another little part of the reason that, that we ought to be offended by this Christmas story. Because it highlights our inability it highlights our need. It highlights the fact that we didn't bring anything to the table other than our need, other than our sin. We had to depend on the help of another. The solution that's coming, you'll see in verse 5, is total and it's complete. Warfare has ended. You get this great picture of, of these battle boots uh, and, and these battle garments being burned as fuel for the fire. And this is huge for a people who have only known warfare or the threat of war since the end of Solomon's reign. That's all they've known is the fear and the threat of war. And Isaiah is saying it's coming to an end. And so I love how Isaiah, if you look at these verses, he's been building up through these. It's a, it's a crescendo, if you will, this great light has shined, this joy has increased, and then he's got three fours, three reasons why. There's a four in verse four, oppression has broken, a four in verse five, for war has ended, and the big one comes in verse six, for a child is born. A child is given. And the government. Boy, how the government's been a big concern for us lately. Right? Who will lead us? Who will protect us? Who will keep us safe? Will it be Israel? Will it be Syria? Could it even be our greatest enemy, Assyria? No, Isaiah says, the government, the leadership, the protection, it's going to be on his shoulder. And his name, his name, full of meaning, not just one, but four, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. His names represented everything God's people needed and were longing for. 
who this child is and what he does is our reason for joy. For deep, great joy. So wonderful counselor. His excellent counsel will be the embodiment of wisdom. Something that we haven't seen a lot of lately with the earthly leaders. We certainly didn't see it with Ahaz and his folly and his bright idea of allying themselves with Assyria. That might have been creative, but it was not wise. So the wonderful counselor has wisdom, but he also has understanding. It's what you need in a good counselor. You need someone who understands. And certainly this child would come to understand us so well. To understand our hurts and our sorrows, to be acquainted with our grief, even our temptations. This wonderful counselor would have wisdom and understanding, but he's also mighty God. The Son will be God. That's at the heart of last week's verse, 714. Emmanuel. His name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so he's God. He's powerful. He's able. And we see this beautiful combination of things begin to unfold. He's wise and he's understanding and he's got ability and he's got strength and power to do something. And he's also everlasting Father. Now, don't get tripped up on this. This is not to say that the Son is also the Father. This isn't tinkering with the Trinity. But it's thinking in terms of, of the leaders of the day, the kings of them day of the day, viewed themselves as fathers, as part of their role to protect, to care, to provide for the people that they led. That's the sense in which the Son will be everlasting Father. Because see, there were two big problems with the earthly kings of the day, with the earthly leaders. And the Son will address them both. Because one problem was that even if you did get a good king, he was going to die one day. He wouldn't last forever. And his son would probably be pretty crummy. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that the good ones were few and far between. Getting a good king back then was a big problem because many were so concerned with self rather than the people that they led that they would often bring great harm to the people because of their own disobedience and idolatry and rebellion but not the Son who was given. He'll do just the opposite. King Jesus will bring great blessing to His people, not through disobedience, but through obedience, through righteousness, even through sacrifice. See, the the earthly kings sought to be served, but not King Jesus. He would come to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Finally, we've got the Prince of Peace. Oh, how God's people had longed for peace. They'd been so afraid of all of these enemies. 
But the peace that they most needed wasn't with any nation. No alliance could accomplish this peace. The peace that the Prince of Peace comes to accomplish is peace with God. The one with whom we are all at odds because of our sin and rebellion, having offended His holiness. And Paul certainly understood the peace that we needed and the way in which the Prince of Peace would provide it. When he's writing to the Colossians, he's got this glorious passage about Christ in chapter 1. And he concludes that passage with these last two verses. For in Him, for in Christ, for in the Son who would be born, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself, to bring peace, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And see, a bloody cross is the last thing that a lot of folks want to think about at the most wonderful time of the year. But the real meaning of Christmas demands that we recognize that the tiny baby in a manger was born for the old rugged cross. And so we have to be offended by that message before we can receive its joy. We have to admit that we desperately need a Savior, that our sins demand punishment, and that we've got no way of fixing things on our own. And that's offensive. That's offensive to our pride. That's offensive to our egos. But here's the joy. is that God the Father did so love the world that He gave. That He gave His only Son. And the joy is that the Son came willingly and died willingly because of the love that He has for us. Be offended by that message and receive its joy. That's the most wonderful time of the year. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, would You, by the work of Your grace, tear down our pride, tear down our independence and our sense of self-sufficiency. Would You, in fact, humble us by the meaning of Christmas? Would You allow it to cause us great offense that we were that desperate that the Son of God had to come and die? And would You take us straight through to the joy of that message that we might know the love with which we've been loved, to know the love of our Savior, who for the joy set before Him willingly endured the cross and suffered its shame. Come, O God, by the work of Your grace and impart to us the Christmas message 
in its truest and deepest meaning that we might know joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand and sing, even as the angels sang in joyous response, hark, the herald angels sing.